G'day, and welcome to episode 107 of the Pack Heavy podcast. My name is Hayden Thompson, and today I'm excited to bring you all a conversation that I had with Kaylee Gilchrist, who is the founder and CEO of Non-A-Vegan. And Kaylee came onto the show to tell her business story, and honestly, it was the perfect way to kick off the first episode for 2023. Now founded in 2013 and located in Toronto, Not A Vegan sells three cashew-based sauces and two tomato and oat-based sauces, all of which are packaged up in the most beautifully branded stand-up pouches. They are custom-shaped, and I actually urge you all to head along to the website and check it out, and uh, you'll know exactly what I mean when you lay your eyes on them. And uh, it's something that we actually talked about in quite a bit of detail during the episode, so stand by for that. Now, Kaylee's delicious sauces can be found in well over 400 stores right across Canada in all of the major retail banners, and I think they're up to around 300 stores down in the States, which is pretty impressive as well. Now, the one thing about Nonna's that you need to know is that they've currently got a front-funded campaign while underway, which is offering investment opportunities for you all, and it's also offering a great opportunity for Nonna Vegan to grow rapidly into the future too. So exciting times ahead are definitely on the horizon, and I encourage you all to head along to the front-funded campaign link as well and check that out. So I'm going to leave it at that for this week, episode 107 with Kaylee Gilchrist. Enjoy. Kaylee, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks so much for having me. It is a pleasure. Uh, I've been really looking forward to this conversation for a while now. And like I said, before we kicked off into the show, it's predominantly because I'm really familiar with your product. I see it on the retail shelf out west where I am in Vancouver. And mm-hmm. you've got a beautiful bag, you've got a beautiful brand, and the aesthetic of your rebrand is absolutely stunning. So congratulations. Thank you so much. That's so lovely. I uh, Yeah, I'm pretty proud with how the rebrand came out too. I like I like seeing us on shelf all shiny and pretty yeah. and new. <laughs> it's got this beautiful aesthetic to it. It's like, it, it's got this familiar look to it. It's warm. It's artistic. It's feminine. It's got all of these beautiful sort of like aesthetics all wrapped up into one to create what is non-a-vegan. Is that like, obviously a lot of intention went behind it, but I'd love to sort of obviously kick into sort of like the non-vegan story, but just while we're talking about branding, like obviously you feel as if it was nailed when you had your original vision for the rebrand, is this exactly what it was or did it evolve over time to get to where you landed? It definitely evolved. Like, I mean, our first packaging, I just hand painted like this hideous pot on mason (laughs) jars. It was so embarrassing. Like there's photos of it somewhere on my social. It's like, yeah. You know, but they say if you're not embarrassed by your first prototype, yeah. then like you did something wrong. I don't know, whatever. But um, yeah. you know, yeah, it's changed. Yeah. And then I had like this like artsy little like um Nona hand painted thing. And then I had anyway, we've gone through a bunch of iterations. Yeah, you know, yeah. the last one before this rebrand was like very color blocky, kind of fun. Yeah, it was, was like, yeah, childlike, like which was cute. Mm-hmm. But Nona needed to grow up, you know, she's a nonna. So yeah, yeah. We were like, yeah, we really started working. Um, Emily, my US business manager, and I were working with, you know, Italian textiles yes. and um, you know, like tea towels and and aprons. Wall like it just aprons. reminds me of yeah. like a beautiful apron that a nonna would wear in the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. We want to get aprons printed for like merch. You should. Yeah, like, that'd be just- cool. Yeah, it was this incredible um, boutique design uh, place in Quebec called Pulp yeah. and Pixel. And they have cool. this incredible illustrator who came up with all the little, you know, custom illustrations. And uh, yeah, we uh, I, I'm totally thrilled with how it came out. I think it came out better than I even could have imagined. You know, ah, it's just that's like, awesome. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, beautiful. Now, um, not a vegan, you launched a business in 2013. You're coming up 10 years, which is a milestone for not only you, but for the business as well. And I can imagine when you sort of like think back to 2013, you know, you had the seed of the idea. It was just an idea and you've turned it into reality and you've obviously made it through the first 10 years, which is a hell of a ride, I'm sure. And there's been peaks and troughs and days where you've been going, what the hell am I doing? And then other days where you're on top of the world. So where did like where did all the idea like where did it come from? Where did the idea where was it sparked? And if you sort of want to take us on that journey, that would be awesome. Sure. Yeah. So um growing up, my I worked at my dad's like family business. It was a swimming mm-hmm. pool store, nothing mm-hmm. to do with food, but I still I was raised with that like entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. So I wanted I, I wanted to be an actor, went to acting school, I have my degree in theater studies and cool. acting conservatory. And like, that was my sort of trajectory, but I always wanted to also have some sort of business on my own too. So that was all percolating. Um, and then I was in my final year of acting school and my mom passed away pretty suddenly uh, from cancer. Yeah. It was like a month and a half of time and then she was gone. So, yeah. and she was like, my best friend. We were super, super close and food was really how we bonded. So she Mm. was, she came over from Italy when she was seven and, but she was like this little hippie vegan back in the seventies, like way ahead of her time. So we were making like this vegan Alfredo as I was growing up. And so when she passed away, I was like making the dang Alfredo every week. Cause I was Mm. like, you know, I wanted just, it made me feel connected to her, I guess. And yeah, I was working part-time at a health food store too, around that same time. Like, and I was like, this doesn't exist in the market. And I'm here making pots of it every week, bringing it to my sister. Who's like, maybe you should start selling this. And uh, one day at the health food store, this woman that I, I love to, you know, I, I really enjoy customer service. I love to talk to her. I'd take people on little, like, these are the best vegan finds in the store uh, yeah. tours. And yeah. she came to me one day and she said, Kaylee, is there such thing as a vegan you know, soy free Alfredo, like in a jar that's not full of a bunch of like crap and starches. And I just like, without even really thinking, looked at her and said, no, but I'm working on it. Don't worry. And my boss at the time was like, are we now? Yeah, you're, you're working on it. I said, I don't know. I guess so. I guess that just kind of came to me. And, uh, yeah, so it's kind of like the perfect storm of a bunch of different factors. I usually don't go into this much detail. It's like, you know, it's a dedication to my mom first and foremost. That's but, beautiful. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that's like, that's all the sort of storm clouds that came together and, and uh, created Nona. Oh, that's Not incredible. Clouds. Happy clouds. Happy clouds. <laughs> no, for sure. The circumstances. <laughs> so you had the idea, okay, so I'm working on something right now and I can see that there's a potential market for it. Like people are asking for it. Mm-hmm. How did you go about actually like, you know, producing the product, getting it out into people's hands, getting some feedback and sort of developing what it actually turned into? Well, I'm really lucky. My boss at the health food store uh, in Toronto was very kind. You know, he would let me, uh, you know, call different random companies that, you know, there were these ladies that made soup, Hall's Kitchen. And I called them and I said, hey, you make soup. What's that like? What, how did you do that? You know, and they were very generous with their time. They actually became cool. my first co-packer. Um, and, and yeah, my boss, I would, I would watch people come in and pitch to him. So I got like the insider scoop, mm. like I'd see what worked and what didn't work. Yeah. And, and a lot of people would go in and say, you know, let me come do a demo. Let me do an in-store sampling demo. And if it sells, it sells. And if not, you know, no harm, no foul, whatever. No strings and attached. So, yep. Exactly. And, you know, it's not a viable business model to 
keep going on basically contingency, but mm. like, <laughs> um, it's like, yeah, it works it, or consignment, not contingency. Sorry. But yeah, it works to get your foot in the door. So mm. that's basically what I did with my boss. I said, let me do a demo and see what happens. And he, he said, of course, sure. You know, I already had him in my corner. Um, and I think we sold through, like, I think I made 24 jars in a little commercial kitchen basement. Mm. And I think we sold through them like very quickly at, a, at the demo. And he was kind of like, Oh, okay. Well, that could be a fluke. Cause people know you here, like whatever. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Well let's, you know, let's see. And it just kind of went from there. And I did the same thing at, you know, like four or five little stores in Toronto. I said, Hey, I'm here. I'd rollerblade around with this big backpackers backpack of sauce. And I was like, can I come do a demo? Um, and you know, it's consignment. So I didn't get a lot of no's. People were yeah. like, yeah, what, what they whatever. got nothing to lose. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then from there it got picked up by a blogger and then it kind of just started to, mm. to build and you found your audience. There. That's yeah. cool. And yeah. so um, obviously sampling's critical. Like there are so many um, entrepreneurs that have come onto this podcast and sampling is the cornerstone of not only where they began, but even in business today, like they continue to sample. And throughout COVID, it was obviously really hard because it got shut down. Um, yeah. was It was. Um, when you were sampling, was it primarily the Alfredo that you got started with? Like, was that what you built the back of the business off? Yeah, I really, I was like, okay, I want to do, you know, that concept of do one thing and do it really well yeah, yeah. Um, before expanding. So I've had a very, I mean, 10 years and, mm. you know, we're, we're now branching out. We've got mm -hmm. more flavors and kind of things in the innovation pipeline. But yeah, I did Alfredo for the first year and a half, two years, mm. just Alfredo. And then I, I introduced a cheesy one in year two or three, and then like I waited and then year four or five, I kind of introduced Carbonara mm. and then I did nothing for like four years. I just, just stuck with what you those need. three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then just last year, I released the two tomato based and oat based ones. Cause I wanted mm. to have something that free. Mm. Um, so I did like an oat based rosé and then the Bolognese with Beyond Meat. So yeah, I saw that. yeah, cool. started really slow and small and then built yeah. on top of yeah. that and how did you find that approach did you feel that it sort of gave you the time to consolidate your processes and your approach to marketing and selling the product as well I think so in hindsight you know yeah. at the time I saw founders friends of mine you know releasing and now we have this whole nother line and mm. look at these five new products and I was <laughs> I was definitely envious like I was like no oh, man, like I just didn't, I didn't pre-raise any money actually. Mm -hmm. So I just didn't have the capital to like go fast and bigger. Um, but yeah, so I was definitely like felt a little bit like bummed about it at the time, but looking mm -hmm. back, I think I could, I don't think I could have managed anymore. And I think it really allowed me to iron out a lot of the kinks early on and kind mm -hmm. of learn lessons with, mm -hmm. you know, a bit of a smaller risk, uh, involved. Cause there were just, you know, three products pretty much. Three products. And right back at the beginning, like, did you go and approach the co-packer as well and say, Hey, this is my um, recipe. This is something that I would love to package up and sell it into the world. And how did you sort of negotiate MOQs and, you know, what did all of that look like? Yeah. My first, so I've been at, I think it's now, it's going to sound bad on my part, but I think it's been in five or six uh, manufacturing plants in the last 10 years. So that right. has been a huge, uh, you know, just a huge learning curve for me, yeah. really. Yeah. And there's been little things at each one and it's not all been horrible. It's just, mm. we outgrow one and we need mm -hmm. to move. Um, mm -hmm. 
So the first one was awesome. It was these uh, two women owned it who I loved. It was, I, they were like mentors to me really in the industry and it was not full turnkey. So I still managed my inventory and I mm. still came in and I would label them overnight. I would put like, a, I would put, I had a Deepak Chopra meditation CD. I would just play it and yeah. like label all night, like 4 a.m. <laughs> like, like, I don't know why. Just, yeah. That's what I did. It got you in the zone. Yeah. It got me zone i was like mm-hmm, meditating while yeah. i label yeah. um so they were great with moqs you know they they really taught me how you know this is how big our kettles are this is your minimum batch size you know and i moved to them just before we launched whole foods so mm-hmm. um i met whole foods like right at the start and they wanted us in and it was that was like such a fast progression mm. like we went from you know rollerblading around to a couple little stores to like Whole Foods wanted us. So it was like, we need a co-packer, we need a distributor, we need to like scale. I can't be making this in this random kitchen basement anymore. Yep. Like it just yep. was not. So yeah. So Kit and Kat, those were, that's, those were their names. Um, they were a fantastic first co-packer for me. Um, then they sold their business. And so I had to move, but anyway, it was, uh, it was, yeah, it, that's sort of how it happened. Beautiful. And so five co-packers over a 10 year period, it sounds to me like, you know, you said that it wasn't all bad. It was because, you know, they, you grew and evolved and changed when you were out there. Like I can imagine you would have potentially have been confronted with a couple of problems. One is that there's only a limited supply of co-packers out there. So your the ver- the amount of choice that you had is kind of slim to start with, mm-hmm. but when you were out there and you were having discussions with co-packers sort of like what specifically were you looking for? And if anybody was in your, in sort of like going, back to you know that stage of where you are were in your business then what advice would you give to people who are potentially looking for a co-packer and want to knock it out of the park right from the start sign really clear um contracts okay sign them have both parties sign a very clear contract and get it looked at by a lawyer spend the whatever and Mm -hmm. get it by a lawyer who knows contract law specifically hopefully cpg product like like that was a big mistake. Um, and I didn't, I never got like totally screwed over by that, but I just, Mm. I definitely was very trusting that, you know, I was 24 when I started the business and like, you know, it was like, yeah, handshake deal, whatever. I believe I trust you. You seem trustworthy. And like, that doesn't always work out. Um, so contracts and yeah, one year I interviewed 49 co co manufacturers across Canada, I'm assuming. Yeah. 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 So for a while I actually had my production in BC Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. And I was living in Ontario and then I yeah. moved to BC and moved my production to Ontario. There was a lot of, you know, you don't have <laughs> like not very logical, but yeah. I think make sure, like, think about, you know, think about your growth. MOQs, you know, come into play here, but yeah. one of the co-packers was fantastic, but they didn't have certifications I needed. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to be vegan and gluten-free and kosher certified. Mm-hmm. Um, and And that was really important. And then, you know, certain retailers require, um, you know, SQF level two, whatever they have certain requirements. And if you're thinking like, okay, I don't, you know, if you're thinking I want to be smaller, more artisanal farmer's market than different Mm. story. But if you want to approach Sobeys one day, you got to know what they're going to require. And you may as well just, if you can hit those MOQs, like I have a short shelf life ish for it's refrigerated. So it's Mm -hmm. six months shelf life. So (laughs) I couldn't go to a big, big place and get like 200,000 bottles made because yeah. it just, it would have spoiled out at the size I was at. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a negotiation there, but as much as you can think about what you're going to need and 
you know, full turnkey is great because you really can focus on another area of the business. And production was never, I like innovation, recipe development, all of that stuff to do with the foodie mm-hmm. side, but mm-hmm. managing production and inventory, like that's just not my expertise or interest. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. really where I was like, okay, I know I want, I don't want to be labeling jars at 4 a.m. Mm. Like I'd rather be, you know, working on a cool marketing campaign or something. Yeah. yeah. So I think just know what your sort of skill sets and desires are and then solve for that, I guess. That's cool. Oh, man. That's great advice. And I guess the other critical piece is that the co-packer can actually work with the packaging that you'd like to put your product in as well. Like, and yeah, I'm assuming right now with flexible, it may have been a little bit restrictive with a co-packer. How did you find that? It's so funny because we moved from, yeah, we started in glass and then yeah. we moved from glass to the pouches uh, four or five years ago at a COVID yeah. time warp in my brain. But um, yeah. we moved uh, about halfway through the business to date. And at first, no co-man wanted to do glass. They yeah. were like, it's breakable. We're moving yeah. away from glass. Yeah. Absolutely no glass. And I was yeah. like, oh, well, here's one more reason <laughs> on my list of 20 reasons of why we have to switch for packaging. Mm-hmm. And but it's funny today I've been, you know, cause they, they're that custom shape, right? They it's beautiful. In. Yeah. I agree. And I'm very yeah. like attached to it, but it, you should it be. is a pain Yeah. It's fill. custom. Yeah. It's stunning. Yeah. yeah. Like it, it stands out on shelf, but it's like a little finicky to get yeah. it into the machine yeah. and, you know, yeah. and um, so it's actually now people are like, oh, it'd be so much easier if you were in glass. I'm like, what has changed in the don't last five years? I don't yeah. understand. <laughs> um, so anyway, it, it's, I don't know if it's, bad or trending or what what happens in the waves or I was, I was just talking to the wrong people back when I was looking for a glass coman but yeah um yeah definitely double check oh and then allergens you know we're, mm. we're our three sauces are cashew based so mm-hmm. a lot of places are nut free mm. and that was a bummer this place that we're in is peanut free which is actually great because a lot of my customers are peanut free um but we have our own little separate room with our little you know cashew oh, stuff all sealed in tight so yeah yeah, they uh they definitely are great for that for allergens separating them out yeah one of the biggest questions that i wanted to ask you was sort of what was it that um you know oriented you towards moving into a custom flexible pouch as well especially from glass like i'm obviously in the industry and i'm very up to speed and aware of all of the value that flexible packaging brings and the other cool thing is in terms of timing uh well, I don't know how it'll go in terms of your episode going live. I think you're going to be out in three weeks time, but we just had Mitch from Ravita Energy Tea on and Mitch is packaging mm. up his energy teas in a beautiful flexible pouch as well. And, you know, mm. we had the discussion around not only um, giving you the ability to uh, differentiate yourself from your competitors, but also, you know, storage and breakage and all of those kinds of things. What was it that sort of pointed you in the direction that it was an area that you wanted to move your packaging into? I love this question because, um, you know, I'm literally the kid when I was 10, I think I called Bounty, like the paper towel company. And I said, why do you individually wrap your paper towels in plastic? Don't you know it's harming our oceans? And, you know, they were like, okay, kid, well, you know, that's what people want. Thanks for your call. Bye. And so I, the thought originally when it first came as an option with my advisors and my team, I was like, Mm-mm, mm-mm. plastic bad. I hated it. I was so, yep. I was so against it. I really resisted it for, for years. Mm-hmm. And then it came to a point where people presented additional research, which, mm. you know, you start going down the train of like how much water and energy glass 
takes to produce Mm -hmm. and recycle and how much of it doesn't get recycled. And then it's sitting even bigger in the landfills. And then it's like 20 trucks of empty jars equals one truck of flat pouches. And Mm -hmm. so you think of the carbon impact there. And then you think of a thousand pound skid versus 400 pound skid because the Mm -hmm. glass just weighs so much. And you think of the carbon there and then you start adding it up and you're like storage, storage space and cost, storage space, cost, um, the labeling that was never really solved for. I know there's labeling machines. I could just never afford them. So it was always like this awful process by hand. And um, yeah, it just really started to add up the environmental impact of glass versus plastic. It kind of you know, so we are working on like something biodegradable, compostable, or fully recyclable. Mm-hmm. It's like I have pouches in my fridge right now that are yep. biodegrading, so they don't work. But it's anyway, I'm work. yeah. working yep. on it. But cool. um, but yeah, those were kind of and then cost, of course. So it was like the jar, the lid, the label, the label on yeah. the, you yep. know, and now it's just all in one. It's already labeled. It's like it's yeah, and breakage as well like stores were like oh it's you know especially on the fridge shelf there's yeah. like you know it would slide off and yep. it was just yeah yeah a little messy so that was yeah. that was really the tr- the the reasons that led me to finally say okay let's do it you know let's work towards something even better but in the meantime you know the research kind of I was like well everything's bad then I should just stop doing everything and then you get like it's like well ultimately I want to continue you know, feeding the world plant-based food. So if yep. it has to be in a pouch for now, then so be it. But I genuinely like the look of them now. Now yeah. I've now I'm team pouch. Like I think that they yeah. look great. <laughs> well, it's extremely innovative. Like there's no one else in the market that has got a, a custom shaped pouch in the area that you're currently in um in the market. And it's yeah, it's awesome. It differentiates you. And like I said, you stand out. Like it, it's beautiful. And uh, yeah, I often look to your pouches like an example out there. I'm like, this is one that, yeah, I need to speak to you. <laughs> so Aww, I'm so glad that we've got this opportunity. Awesome. So that's cool. I love um, that. Now. Talk to me a little bit about the execution of your strategy. So like I can imagine that, you know, when you first wrote down your business plan, as soon as it hit the the road, it went out the window and you had to sort of like make some adjustments pretty quickly just to sustain the business. But like if you think about like what the original business plan looked like and what your vision was compared to where you are 10 years down the road, what are the major sort of changes that you've had to implement? Well, I got a cease and desist letter in my first uh, year of business and had to change the business name. So that oh, was really? a big one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what did you change from? Surprise. Um, it used to be called soul to bowl sauces, mm. like my soul to your bowl sauces. Yeah. And um, that's what I went to my first two big shows, CHFA, the Canadian Health Food Association, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. East Trade Show and VegFest Toronto. I, I did those my first year, which was like, such a leap and I shouldn't have, but it turned out well for me. But anyway, I, when I had printed my little business cards, my little signs, and then I literally got the cease and desist letter, I think just before VegFest. So I, I like had it in my pocket, knew I had to change my branding. And I was like, um, yeah, we're soldable sauces, but I don't know. Stay tuned. Follow us. Like, Oh, and like, that's when I also met Whole Foods. And so, you know, I was like, thank you so much. Yeah, let's do business. I'm changing everything though, but I swear it'll be better. Products um, the same. Yeah. The product's the same. Yeah. So, so that was a huge change. And then I think starting out, I didn't realize, you know, that a food CPG brand is definitely so marketing heavy and mm. it's so uh, 
pay to play in a lot of ways, listing fees, slotting fees, Mm -hmm. refills, like there's just endless costs. And, you know, to grow, you really have to have some capital. And I did not know that. So like my first year, I got a loan from Futurepreneur. Yep. And they were like, do you want 60? And I was like, nah, 30 is more money than I'm ever going to need. You know, that 30,000 was gone in like three weeks. And I was like, damn, should have asked for more money. And now, now what? Um, lesson learned. You know, and then I, yeah. yeah, lesson learned for sure. And then I, I, I mean, not totally. Cause then I did a small raise and I should have mm. asked for more money again, mm-hmm. but I did just a, you know, friends and family, small, small around early ish. Um, but now I know like part of the role is to literally go from funding series to funding series, right? It's like, if you're going to grow, you keep needing these capital injections for all of those slotting fees and, and equipment upgrades and, and distribution charges and like all the stuff you need to market it. So that is a way that the business plan has totally changed. I guess I just, you know, I went to theater school. So now I feel like I have an MBA, but I starting, I had no business Mm. education. So Mm it's like, okay, I sell sauce for ten dollars it cost me five dollars the five dollars goes in the bank i get two of it for my salary and call it a day you know it's just like so my early business plans were very rudimentary i guess i'll say the financial plan was yeah 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 you know and now i know okay but you're gonna have these mega expenses coming out and you also are gonna need to balance that with some like cash injections going in throughout the years yeah yeah was it fear that was holding you back from like acknowledging that you may have needed that money and you said no I'll take the 30 like what was it that was sort of the barrier for you I think it was fear totally it was fear and just not knowing I think I didn't want to it's funny because now I'm like so risky if someone offers me anything I'd be like yeah I'll take take it I'll take on the debt yeah Yeah. of course because I now I I can visualize where that Mm. could go and where that Mm. could take us I think at the time I was like what am I going to do with this? Like I wanted to buy a car. I had my eye on a, I think $900 beater. And I was like, well, there's $900. And you know, my, um, I think I had a mentor at the time and he's like, well, why don't you bump that up? Like get something a little bit better. I'm like, no, that's it. That's all I, like, I was very, I don't know. I just didn't, I think it was just ignorance and probably fear and taking on that big of a debt load. Like I still had my yeah. university debt yeah. and I was yeah. kind of like, you know, my dad's not, I don't come from a wealthy family. So I was kind of like, Ooh, I don't know. Let's just try a little yep. bit at a time. Yep, yep, yep. And yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so like you said, you came from theater and you didn't study business, but you've just accomplished like a real life MBA, like on the fly, which yeah. is priceless. Like it's absolutely priceless. I don't think there's any better way to learn. Um, now, you said that you engaged with Futurepreneur pretty early on as well. So you obviously had some people behind you and some shoulders that you can lean on. Who did you approach first? And like, you know, how did um, the uh, mentors that you had around you sort of shape and guide you as you went? Yeah, I mean, I've been so fortunate with mentors in this business, like just mm. like had such incredible people supporting me from from the beginning. So Futurepreneur, my first mentor there um, was great, like accountability, you know, we had weekly meetings, she came from a corporate background. So she was, um, you know, thought a little more big business, which was actually good for me at the time, because I was like this little scrappy entrepreneur on rollerblades. And so she was a little bit, you know, uh, bigger thinking and was able to really help guide a lot of the finance stuff, because that was just completely new to me. I mean, I did well in math, but what does that mean when you're thinking about a 
cash flow forecast model, you know, it's just not, it doesn't translate from high school math. So, so she was excellent for that. And just accountability, um, and that whole futurepreneur network, like I really, I went to every networking thing. They had little, you know, money, money mornings, Thursdays at like some random hour. I think it was 530 AM down on like Bay street downtown Toronto. And, you know, I just really leaned into that community. Um, and, met one of two of my investors through Futurepreneur community. And then um, a few years ago, I found the CGLCC, the Canadian Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce. Mm, and I did mm-hmm. their uh, youth out for business program. And I got cool. a diverse certification and I got a mentor from that who I'm still very close with. I'm tuning in from her kitchen right now. So she's That's very awesome. much still a part of the business and yep. it is a fantastic support, you know, just again, accountability and just having someone, she's all, she's an entrepreneur. So having someone who's like been mm-hmm. through building a business before mm-hmm. like her own business is just really valuable to bounce, you know, more strategic, bigger picture things yep. um, off, you know, not, not necessarily the minutiae, boring yep. day-to-day stuff, but um, yep. yeah. So I've had a lot of great mentors through programs that I've, or communities or groups that I've been part of. Yeah. That's awesome to hear. Um, when you're thinking about investing in business from a investor's perspective, like there are two things that I'm sure they're probably evaluating. One is like the business itself. What mm-hmm. kind of future does it have and what kind of return on the investment are they getting or potential is there? And then you as an entrepreneur, because they're investing in you. Yeah. When you were looking at it through the lens of an like a, an investor now, I can totally understand why they were investing in you, but when they were investing in the business, what exactly was attractive to them in those early days? What were they looking for? Hmm. I think the early investors were definitely buying into believing in me yeah. for sure. Like it that, means so much. That. It means so yeah. much. Yeah. It yeah. did. Yeah. It was such a huge part of it. And then, um, the, I think the potential, potential of plant-based to be honest, yeah. especially five years. I mean, today it's even more and more, it's really just picking up speed. Mm. But back then, I think these three really saw that coming, that trend coming and we're mm-hmm. like, mm, yeah, this, this checks out. There's growth potential, you know, there's how many grocery stores just in Ontario. And then mm. obviously DC is a logical next step. And then the U S is just, you know, and they, you, you can look at comparable uh, sales in the, in the market and acquisitions and, you know, businesses are going for a hundred million, 400 million. It's just, so I think they just really actually saw the potential um, Mm. return on their investment. That's cool. It's amazing how far we've come in the last 10 years. Like 2013 feels like yesterday. Well, to be (laughs) honest, the year 2000 doesn't feel that long ago to me. It's bizarre, but here we are like 20 odd years down the road. And if you think of the world back then and where we are right now, it's very, very different. I even think the last 12 months, like we're in a different world from the last 12 months. So, you know, obviously you mentioned that plant-based has shifted and changed a lot, even though there was some potential and the signs were promising 10 years ago, mm-hmm. where are we at right now? Like, do you feel the sky's the limit? Like there are some businesses out there from like Margaret from Nuts for Cheese who are in a really nice position and getting active investment as well. And like, just mm-hmm. like gearing up for growth. And I feel like you're in the same position as well right now with your front funder campaign. Like what's on, what's the future hold for you? Yeah. I mean, I think in this latest round preparing for my front funder, you know, I put together this deck. And so I went out to get all the latest sort of stats because it had yeah. been a few years since I really went stat digging because it you know, got mm-hmm. 
reference everything. And, and I found um, one third of US households um, claim to be flexitarian, Mm. and which is flexible vegetarian, right? And so it means that there's at least an awareness and an openness to plant based or, you know, having a meatless Monday here and there, um, which I just think is so vastly different from 10 years ago. It's mm-hmm. bananas to me. And I think that we're really just going further and further in that direction and for environmental reasons for a lot of people. It's environmental. Um, it's plant-based food. Prepared food is just tasting so much better today. Like I, I think that's the shift. I personally I believe that shift. that's got yeah. a lot to do with it. It's tasting better now than it ever has. Yeah. 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 Like I've been vegan now for 18, 19 years and just being a little kid trying rice cheese for the first time. Like it was, (laughs) I'm telling you, it was not a good time. Yeah. 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 And it probably like, it didn't sit well in the tummy either. And like, there are a whole host of problems back then. A lot of soy was sort of involved and, you know, Mm -hmm. the the world has evolved and shifted from then, I believe. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And there's just. And there's so much more, um, there's so many more options available, mm. you know, A&W bringing Beyond mm. Meat in. It's like, I can actually go for a road trip now and and eat. Whereas before I'd be like, okay, pack all my protein bars before I head out on my journey because I'm not going to eat for <laughs> another 12 hours because there's nothing. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a huge shift. And I think it's just going to continue to go honestly in that direction. And people and businesses want to be more and more inclusive to different dietary uh, restrictions and preferences. Like mm-hmm. that's what we, and no, no, we say tutti a tavola, like everyone to the table. If you're gluten-free, lactose-free, kosher, uh, you know, you, every, cool. we want everyone to like eat food together and share yeah. that love, yeah. love through food together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the common thread that binds us all is that we all got to eat. And uh, yeah, I believe it. Um, I've been fortunate enough, like I said, before we kicked off that I had Laurie Joyce from Better With Ice Cream on the show twice. And I also had Erica Rankin from Brodo. Uh, Laurie um, undertook a front funder campaign. I think Erica's on the cusp. It's about to happen pretty soon. And then Fatso, which is a client mm. here um, at Food Pack, uh, she's got a front funder campaign potentially still going right now. I'm not up to speed on it. But front funder seems like an awesome platform in that it gives you an opportunity to really market your company, sell some equity off for some, um, for some funds as well and it actively gets people engaged in your brand and your business and the advocates mm-hmm. for you uh, what was it about from funder that was attractive i mean all of what you just said totally like i think um you know to the point of nona being very community-based community has always been one of our top values as the mm. company and the thought of being able to invite people you know to have a seat at the table as cheesy as that sounds. No, it makes total sense. I make cheese sauce, so I'm allowed to make cheesy jokes. But yeah, it's like (laughs) inviting people into our company at that level actually feels really uh, meaningful to me. And I think that it just is a great format to, to grow that, that group of brand ambassadors out there in the world are nona familia, like I like mm. to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually had a call with Lori, a couple of calls with Lori leading yeah. up to launch. I don't doubt it. Day. She is such an advocate for such getting out advocate. there and speaking to people in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. She's, cool. she's fantastic. So she's really the, the one that made me decide, okay, this is, this is what I want to do. Um, you know, I didn't have a ton, a huge budget for marketing it going mm-hmm. into it. So I was kind of like, do we think it's the right, is it, is it a weird time? Are we heading into a recession? Are people going to want to give money? Like there was a mm-hmm. lot, but you know, it just, we need the funds to grow and we're already growing. We launched into the States and, you know, that is going very well according to 
what we set out, our plan, like we're rolling it out region by region. Um, but, you know, to the point we said earlier, it's such an expensive industry. We mm. Really, we now we've, we have the sales and the interest and now we have to come in and support that with really strong marketing, which is mm. already planned out. We just need to implement it now. Mm-hmm. So so it's a pretty cool opportunity. Um, and then Front Funder just allows... Yeah, it, it also democratizes, you know, investing in mm. private markets because mm-hmm. it's just anyone can invest for as You don't as need 10 or 20 bucks. grand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So it's been uh, really exciting to learn about and watch the other campaigns. I watched the Fatso campaign. She's yeah. great. I think she's yeah. closed now. Yeah, I, I felt like it, it. I thought it might have been around now, if not a week or two ago. Yeah. 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 So it's been, it's been fun. Um, and, you know, we put together a a, a beautiful video and I feel very proud of of the presentation yeah. of the whole page and and all of that so it's it's exciting I'm I think we're going to do a huge push for it in January you know let mm. people get through the holiday season and then mm-hmm. and if you follow me on LinkedIn sorry because I'll be posting about it all the time <laughs> <laughs> don't be sorry you got to market it that's awesome I know <laughs> that's great tell me about I guess the most interesting thing that I find about your business is obviously like we've talked about your packaging and the, you know, the attractiveness of the brand that you've built. And and I love the evolution that you've made throughout the 10 year period as well. When you think about the skills that you've personally leveraged within the organization, what do you think that your strengths specifically have been? Well, I do think that my theater background has served me well. So mm. I, I don't know if that's surprising, but, um, you know, I definitely, I love performing i love doing pitch events i love networking yeah. and yeah. and doing this kind of thing and it's being the it's face all, of the business i yeah. love being the face of the business exactly yeah. Yeah. you know i like me a spotlight so mm-hmm. um <laughs> sauce boss over here so i think that that has honestly done me well for building sort of the personal brand side of it yeah. and and showing people that there's someone behind the business which i think nowadays is is becoming more and more important for folks who like to shop local and support mm-hmm. women-owned or queer-owned businesses, you know, whatever mm-hmm. your personal sort of value system is, I think a lot of people, um, you know, try to, to, to make that affect with their, with their dollars. So mm. it's definitely my theater background. And then also growing up with my, with my entrepreneurial dad, like just mm. knowing what that sort of hard day's work and, and sort of learning on the job, you know, he like threw me on a forklift before I was probably ready to do that. And I was like, yeah. okay, well, it's the family business. I gotta, I gotta lift this hot tub out of this truck on this forklift and just figure it out. Cause you know that, and I think just having that can do attitude has really served me well throughout the last decade. How old were you when you started working in your dad's business? Um, I started working, well, I would do little things. Like I remember he would set me and my best friend Shaley up with like uh mail out. So we would have to stuff the envelopes when yep. we were like 10, you know, stuff yep. like that. Yeah. And invoices painted, and stuff. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I painted yeah. his big store windows. He let me just go to town and paint all his windows one year when I was quite young. But officially, I think I was 14 when I started working at the yeah. store proper. Yeah. Yeah. I was 12 when I started working in my parents' business. Oh yeah. And that was such formative years. Like I can't speak highly enough about 
getting to work early as a kid. Like it just teaches you really good work ethic and values and the ins and outs of potentially how a business can work and the stresses involved and the highs and the lows and how to sell and how to market and all of those really basic things and the conversations around that dinner table that you were talking about, about business is just priceless. It's it's so cool. Totally. Yeah, mm. exactly. So you know exactly exactly yep. what I mean. And, and you just brought up a really good point too, learning to sell. Like mm. I was... 14 year old, 14 years old and selling swimming pools, like mm-hmm. gi- large purchases. And I'm like, mm-hmm. do you want to upgrade to salt water though? Because that's really where the future of swimming pool water is going. <laughs> you know, like, like, I learned all this at such a young age. And I yeah, really I yeah. do think that that is a skill that has transferred into uh, Nona for sure. But it's actually the only skill. Like, I don't think you need anything else. Like, and (laughs) I did my master's in entrepreneurship and innovation, my MEI, which is like an MBA, but rather than learning how to work within an organization that's already created, you're learning how to create the business and, you know, get out there and do all of the market testing and product validation and iterate, iterate, iterate until you actually find something that works and then hit the ground running. It was awesome, awesome, but there was not one unit of sales not one. There was marketing, there was accounting, there was product development, there was everything what? except sales. It's ridiculous. I know. That's bananas. Ridiculous. I, it makes me so angry right now because I'm in sales. That's <laughs> what I do for a living. And I'm like, yeah. this is a skill that's almost like it, it should be compulsory. It's like the skill. It's the yeah. skill. Because if you you're... should go pitch them a course on that. Well, I don't know if I want to <laughs> do that. you do what you want to do you're busy enough I'm sure no but honestly like um if you you know sales you're selling an idea you're selling a you know whether you're selling a a product or an idea to an investor or you're selling something to an employee and saying hey listen like this is the direction that we're going like you're giving people a reason why you're trying to you know add value or solve a problem like there's always something and it all ties back to sales so it's so cool that sort of that's the the one thing that you've valued from those early formative years that you still carry through today yeah totally that's cool if you had the opportunity to go back to where you started with the knowledge that you have right now what business advice would you give yourself Hmm. it's tricky I'm tempted to say don't do a refrigerated product Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) but then I wouldn't be where I'm at and I love I love that we're refrigerated for you know boring food science reasons and flavor reasons and all of the, I, I really stand behind us being in the fridge, but mm. um, just logistically, mm. if I had done a tea company or a spice company, and I'm not saying stable. it's easier. Yeah. yeah like yeah. I know everybody's every industry and I'm sure there are struggles. I don't even understand with those um, types of food, but yeah, I think I might, might caution against that. Mm. And then say yes to more money sooner when you have mm. some money in the bank and some mm. credit to get more, like just do, you know, Again, I think that it's it's great that I've done so much learning basically on my own dime for 10 years. Mm. I've made all the mistakes and now when we get our capital, I'm not going to I'm not going to blow it. I'm not going to mess mm. up and blow it on on silly mistakes, you know, because I've already taken the time to do all that learning. Um mm. but I do think we could have gone bigger faster with mm. more capital earlier. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I might I might tell young Kaylee that. Good advice. Yeah. You said you've got six shop, six months shelf life at the moment, and it's mm-hmm. uh, you said cold chain. Um, mm-hmm. You're, I'm assuming you're doing a hot fill. Yeah. Have you ever explored HPP, high pressure pasteurization, as an option to give you some extended shelf life? Yeah, we're not acidic enough to have it be really more than a couple weeks extra. Interesting. So it, it doesn't make wasn't... much of an impact. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Cool. 
yeah, yeah I was just curious. Yeah. yeah. There's a uh, HPP facility here in uh, in Richmond. Mm. I think they're the only one here on the West Coast and they're very, very busy. A lot of people are using it for like juices, like cold pressed juices oh, yeah. and extending the shelf life of soups and stuff. But yeah, I wasn't sure if yours was or not. I, I would have hazarded a guess and said it was, but there you go. Interesting. Yeah, we're not. No, I've, I've, you know, it, it's a good point. I should maybe go back to them and ask now that we're in the pouch format we did do a mm. slight reformulation on on the actual sauce itself yeah. when we when we changed packaging yeah. um but yeah last time i checked in with them they were like mm, you need to add a ton more acid which is interesting one of the reasons we're not shelf stable because yeah. i find a lot of shelf stable alfredos and sauces taste like they have that like acidity to them rather than to, like a creamy richness you know? yeah got it yep. yeah so yep. that's why we're refrigerated so i was like well if i have to do that for hpp then i may as well go shelf stable yeah. so i just yeah, yeah. left it but yeah uh but it's a good point i should maybe look into it because having a little more shelf life especially now that we're exporting mm -hmm. to the states mm -hmm. is you know Great. I couldn't Priceless. complain about that. Yeah, yeah, no, it would make a difference. <laughs> I'm always personally curious and I haven't spoken to anybody about it and I've ne never done any investigating that how it would impact your margins. Like I don't know what the costs involved are around HPP. Maybe I should have somebody on. But uh, yeah, so you'd obviously have to consider that too. Yeah, definitely. Interesting. If we were to fast forward a year from now and you could say to me that you had had your best year ever, this is in life or business, what would you have accomplished? Ooh, a year from now. <laughs> I would say, hey, I've had my best year ever because we raised a lot of money from a lot of incredible people on Front Funder. Uh, they're all behind us in the brand and our vision. Everyone's, you know, united in that community vision of sharing love through food, bringing everyone to the table, inclusive tables, inclusive kitchens. Um, and we've released our next sauce. <laughs> One's coming. Um, oh, cool. And yeah, and our innovation pipeline is loaded up with incredible Italian, vegan, and gluten-free products. And Lovely. yeah, and we've got good distribution in the US and and going deeper in Canada as well. That's well, what I tell you. <laughs> I feel like it's just only beginning for you. That's really exciting. Thank you. Let's well, congratulations. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely manifest you. it. Congratulations <laughs> on all of your uh, success that you've had and good luck for the future. I'm really excited to keep you watching you grow from uh, from a distance on LinkedIn. It's really cool. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and having me and all your kind words. No worries. Hey, listen, if anybody wanted to get in touch and ask any questions regarding any of the conversations we've had today, what's the best way for them to go about it? Um, email me Kaylee at nonavegan.com. Um, which I can give you to write. Somewhere. Yeah. I'll put it down in the show notes. Yeah, I will. Awesome. Yep. Or Instagram message. I'm also the one running our Nona Instagram oh, cool. right now. So you can just shoot me a message there. I usually see them. Um, yeah, those are the best ways. Well, fantastic. Thank you very much um, for everybody out there. Like I said, scroll on down into the show notes. Definitely check out the Front Funder campaign. I'll have the link down there for everybody as well. And uh, there's a great little video right at the start, which gives a lot of context around the business as well. And yeah, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. <laughs> Bye. And that's episode 107 with Kaylee in the bank. Uh, if you'd like to continue the conversation, definitely head on to LinkedIn where you'll find Kaylee and I and a little post about this episode. Otherwise, we'll see you back here for episode 108 next week with Hope from Designful Hope. Cheers. <laughs>